0: Welcome to another Service Management Leadership Podcast. My name is Jeffrey T. Fertiller. As I have advertised, I want to amplify voices in the industry. And Shane Matthew said he will take me up on it. So this podcast is an interview between Shane Matthew and Scott Baldwin talking about business continuity. And so please give it a listen and uh, check out what they have to say. I do want to amplify voices, and so if this is something you want to do in terms of just talking about what, how people can do things better, I fully support it, and I'll be happy to do the same for you. Hope everyone has an awesome Friday, and thank you for listening.
1: I got to wondering why these programs with these very intelligent, capable people were constantly being you know, rebooted. And it started to occur to me that the secret was in engagement.
0: Welcome to the Failover Plan Podcast. I'm Shane Matthew. Now, I've started a few business continuity programs over the years, and I've typically patterned them off a standards-based approach and get things done like a BIA and plans for all the departments. But then I began to notice a pattern that I'm almost afraid to admit. I've loved being a part of the startup game, but I would really get bored after a few years of repeating the same things over and over again. I think I would begin to sense the feeling of dread that departmental leaders would have when I showed up for their annual BIA refresh or exercise. That usually translated to me needing to find the next organization and get that new BCM program smell all over again. On this episode of the Failover Plan podcast, We're gonna talk with someone who's started several programs in his career, but that has also found a unique way to keep things fresh. We're gonna learn more about his approach to not only starting a program, but how he keeps the organization engaged. Scott Baldwin is a risk and resiliency leader with credits at companies like Charles Schwab, PayPal, eBay, and Symantec. And over the last few years, he's learned quite a bit about making his programs impactful. Be sure to subscribe to the Failover Plan podcast so you can get access to all our episodes. If you haven't already, check out failoverpodcast.com or find us on iTunes or other podcast sites. And now, on to the show. So welcome to the show, Scott Baldwin. Thank you for joining me today. Um, So we've uh, known each other for a while now, um, but uh, I want to uh, get the audience to understand you a little bit better. So kind of tell me about uh, how you you originally got into business conduit. I'm not looking for your life story. By any means, but <laughs> how did you get into the field?
1: Well, I was born in San Jose, <laughs> California. No. Um, so my first career, my first uh, job, was as a software engineer, and so I spent about seven years as a as a software developer, starting about ninety seven to two thousand five. That was the dot com boom, and um, you know I worked almost exclusively for startups. And uh, the interesting thing is almost every, I've worked at like four or five places during those seven years. And almost it, with, with the single exception, every single place I worked at had their production server on premises. It was typically in a closet somewhere on the floor that we all worked on. And uh, most of those places also had our development server um, as uh, on the same machine. So if something happened, we would have been completely out of business, right? Um, but, uh, we didn't do a lot of backups. That was not really, you know, disaster recovery, business continuity was completely, I was ignorant of it totally until one day that I, uh, lost about three weeks worth of coding. And for the next week I had to catch all that up and, and rebuild everything I'd done in the previous three weeks. And it was a horrible, horrible, uh, week. Is so that after, what happened? Is
0: that why the .dot-com crash
1: happened? Because that, you lost it, all? Yeah, it was me. I did it. That was all <laughs> me. No. Um, that actually, I didn't even realize the .dot-com bubble was bursting at the time. It just got harder and harder as as time went by. But um, you know, so um, after that experience, I became kind of a zealot about backing up every night. I backed up my code because I, you know, it's such a painful lesson. And over my time, I became a junior software developer, and then you know, senior, and the manager, and a director, whenever I had the authority, I tried to force my team to back up every night, and um, it was crazy, um, it's such an effective way, and, and, and easy thing to do, but I had so much resistance, for some people, for some reason, people did not want to back up their code, it was just crazy, and um, even after people on my team would lose, you know, their, their hard drive would fail, or whatever, and they'd have to rebuild all their code, they would do it you know, backups for a couple weeks and then they'd stop doing it again. I just could not understand why people, and of course, when there's something that's really easy and effective to do and no one does it, it just makes you feel more, you know, it's like a, a rock in your shoe, you know, it just bothers you. So that became kind of a big deal to me. Um, and as the, the, the dot-com bubble kind of burst, um, I started looking around because um, jobs started getting scarcer and the work got harder, the hours got longer, it started getting really rough. Um, and so I had a friend who introduced me to um, disaster recovery and I had no idea there was even a, um, a thing of disaster recovery because again, dot .coms, they don't care about anything but exit strategies and IPOs and all that stuff. So um, I was very excited about that. It was kind of a you know a big deal for me to discover that there was this whole other world. And so I got really behind it, um, started doing disaster recovery, and then eventually learned about business continuity. And I love that because you got to learn all about different um, functions within an organization. You got to talk to people and crisis management and all that kind of stuff. So that was my introduction to it. And I would just say the two things I really am thankful for from my software development background is one, this, this uh, really Being um, in the midst of people who don't want to think about um, recovery. That's a real thing that we deal with even today. Everyone in the profession, there is a block of a lot of people not to want to think about the worst case scenario. That's the one thing that I learned. Another thing is um, I, you know, learned um, software development through an object-oriented approach. And so that was very deeply ingrained with me. Um, And so... When I build my programs, I always build an object-oriented program now. It's what I like to call it. Hmm, what, what's a,
0: that mean? What, what For For somebody who doesn't know, like, you know, my audience. Yeah,
1: right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, me, and me. What does object-oriented uh, approach mean?
1: Basically, procedural is where you go from 1 to 10 in order. Okay. Um, object-oriented is where you kind of take an activity, a process, and instead of putting it into um, – Uh, a a sequence of events, you take a process and then you wrap it up in another process. And every time you need to take advantage of that process, you just call it. So, for example, um, you know, if you want to print something out on the screen, there's a command you type through and you put all the, the, you know, the commands to print something out. Um, Ah, Okay. Okay. So what this is, is like you just wrap that up in a wrapper, and then you wrap that wrapper in a larger wrapper, and then it makes it very scalable. You don't ever have to think about doing it again. You just duplicate what you've done, and it makes uh, your program very um, efficient and scalable. Interesting. So okay. I was able to then tackle large companies' programs the same way I would tackle a small company because it's just duplicating what I've already done. And it makes it very efficient, also makes it very predictable. I can tell how long it's gonna take me to um, to do that program because I know basically how long it takes for each thing. Right. And I just duplicate I mean,
0: and, that. And that is a constant struggle. I know I had when I was building a program was was the first question is how long is this gonna take? Mm-hmm. You know, and so to have some measurable means from either historical or experience you know to be able to say that that is that kind of along the lines you're talking about
1: it's it's really great because i can tell exactly what i'm going to do and how long it's going to take and they tell me how much resource i have and what the scope is and how much time i have and i can put it all together and figure out if that works or if i need you know to narrow the scope or broaden my resources or whatever so it's very effective and it's (sighs) it's also creates it takes an overwhelming kind of situation and makes it very approachable you just I have see. to do it once you just you build it once and then you just duplicate that
0: did you immediately know how to do that when you got your first kind of re- resiliency or, or business continuity role or did you kind of have to learn in the first one and what what was that like
1: well I when I first started in business continuity and disaster recovery for example when I first started doing dr I worked for a company that's very old-fashioned we had mainframes in fact we did all our work with paper and pencil and then we went total Futurama and put it into Excel files afterwards Ooh. so yeah so I learned everything really I, I feel like I learned everything from the very um, the basic aspect of it um, and so when you're learning something obviously you, it's not you, you can't really take a strategic look at it you're in the midst of learning these tactical yeah. operational things so it's it's hard to see that on the other hand that was just my approach because when I w- built a program a software program, you know, um, that was always the approach I took. You, you see, what can you build and reuse as opposed to you don't want to, to type the same code over and over, so you build these functions or you build these classes or objects that you just call and reuse over and over. And so that was just my default thinking when I started building programs.
0: What was a module? I mean, I'm thinking of it in, in in the lines of how you've described it, but... You know, can you translate what were some of the modules like for for people who are kind of working in the traditional sense? Was there any pieces? Are you talking about, like, training? Or are you talking about um, BIA? Like, what what are your uh, objects?
1: Well, so, for example, um, and it's it's actually, I think, a lot of people do this. They may not look at it in this, these terms the same way I do. Okay. Um, but it's basically the same thing. But if you look at it like... Um, I need to conduct a BIA. The the purpose is to understand um, the recovery time objective and the, um, you know, the risk of a certain function if they were impacted, right? Um, So that's the goal, right? But what I do then is I'm going to train someone else how to do that. I'm going to build Um, some training materials and a a framework on how someone else could learn how to do that. And that would be maybe someone on my team. This is the approach we're going to take it. But then we wrap that up, and now we have this self-contained training module for BIAs um, that my team member can then train someone else in the business how to do it. The same approach that I'm teaching my staff, they're going to take, and they're going to train the business. And... Then we're going to roll that into the business continuity plan and validation exercises, wrap that up into a program. So everything we do, we only do once. And then we just duplicate it or we group it together. And um, again, it's very metric centric because every component of what we're doing is, um, you know, this um, um, is an object that we know how many we have to do. We you know, it's it just makes it very simple for me. It's it's just – yeah, it's just an approach that works for yeah, me. And so if it it's has. a huge company, I, I know exactly what it's going to take to address the situation and build a program. So it makes it very easy for me.
0: Right. So when you've – you've worked at a, quite a few uh, tech companies in, in the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. And when you've come in, have you had the experience of working where they haven't had any program before mm-hmm. you arrived? Okay. So tell us about that a little bit. Like how did that evolve and what were the expectations put on you when you got there?
1: Well, um, it's, it's, it, it's both good and bad because when you don't have – if you're not coming into a situation that's already had a program, when there has not been a program before, you get um, – in one way you get a lot more um, engagement right off the bat. Cause they give you, they give you kind of the, um, they trust what you're doing. They, you know, they say, okay, you're doing resiliency, your business continuity. Great. We'll help you. On the other hand, they don't have an appreciation of the time frame A lot of this stuff takes and the investment required to make a sustainable program. You know, they just want someone to come in and, you know, check the boxes, get done. And, and they don't understand that it really takes a while to do, um, um, a sustainable and effective program as opposed to a program where you have, you know, documents on the shelf somewhere. So you okay. want to build capability. You want to build, um, you know, engagement with the business because they're the ones they are going to have to recover, not you. So that's a good part. The bad part. Well, I mean, that's the, 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 the pros and cons of going to a program that has no history of a program. On the other hand, when I go into a company that has a program, it's usually a failed program. That's why they bring me in. Um, you get a lot of people that are bitter, that don't believe, that kind of turned off to resiliency, that, that think it's just useless and you're wasting their time. And that's the bad part of it. The good part is that they do have an understanding of the kind of work required and that it's not an overnight kind of fix. And, you know, you can't just install an application and your work's done kind of thing. So,
0: yeah. So how, how do you overcome those types of uh, objections that you've seen? And, you know, if you come into a program like you're describing that maybe has not done so well or has failed prior to your arrival, you know, have you had, do you have any tricks on how you've uh, got people to, to kind of see it through your lens and maybe uh, rejoin the flock?
1: Usually when, I, when I'm when i brought in, it's by some executive that understands they have a problem. So I don't have to sell it to them, but my the the program model I use is to give complete ownership and empowerment to the functional leads. So Mm -hmm. I go to each business unit executive and tell them they are responsible for their own resiliency risk. And again, going back to my software, I I visualize this kind of, I tell them this and then they're going to give me an answer. I'm going to say, you own this risk. You're responsible. If anything happens, it's on your shoulders. And usually I try to get a policy to say that before I do this, but I go in and give them this, you know, this heavy message and there's like five or six different responses that always come back. <laughs> the hardest response is, dude, we've done this and it's a waste of time and um, I don't need your help. You know, you're just, yeah. you're, you're, you're a net drain on my time and energy. That's the most difficult thing because um, um, all the other ones have a very, pretty simple Um, answer to you know I go down here's the argument it's almost like when you're doing sales and someone gives you an argument you have a a can script yeah exactly so I have a script for each one of these but when it comes down to I just don't believe that you can do what you say you're going to do there's nothing you can tell them so what I do is um, I ask them to give me some you know some time just give me a chance this is different Um, and you know, it's, it really comes down to sometimes six months later, they'll, they'll tell me, you know what, you were right. Um, this is different than what we did before. But it's just, you know, there's a, there's the carrot and the whip. And I like to use the carrot as much as possible, but sometimes you have to just say, you know, I understand your concern, but you have to do this.
0: I mean, I think that's what people need to hear perspectives on, is is that we do all face that when we're dealing with uh, new programs, especially, or even just Mm -hmm. existing uh, recreates or refreshes. Um, So so in your experiences, what company in experience in business continuity did you find to be the most fun, the one that you look back on most fondly, and why?
1: Um, I guess eBay. I love eBay. I love the culture there. I love the, um, you know, just the, like, basically... When I worked at eBay, everyone was very friendly. It was just a very friendly place to work, very fun place to work. Um, And that's really what it comes down to. It doesn't mean it was the easiest place to work. When I worked at Charles Schwab or even at Symantec, I had a lot more authority because FFIEC um, regulations, I could say, you need to do this. eBay really didn't have any regulations once they split from PayPal. They didn't have any... um, you know, standards they had to meet or anything. It was completely done for the sake of being avail- high available. You know, high availability. So it was a lot of fun, but it was it's challenging because of that. You know?
0: Yeah, that's 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 probably the experience I identified the most with in in my time. I mean, there was some basic requirements for a publicly traded company, but beyond that, it was like the wild west when it comes to business continuity. So you kind of you had to be, like you said earlier, a carrot and stick approach in a lot of ways. Now, with mm-hmm. eBay um, or companies like that, when there really isn't a pressure that you can find, you know, mm-hmm. is it really just come down to executive support or is there other things that you did? No. Like, what did you do creatively to kind of make them, uh, you know, interested? What kind of carrots did you use? I guess is the, the better question.
1: Well, uh, you know. When I first started working, when once I kind of learned the basics of business continuity, disaster recovery, and crisis management, and then I started noticing the program structure, and I worked for some really great, very smart, capable people, but even then, these programs would only last three to five years, and then they'd be rebooted. They would they would fail. Either the people get burnt out and leave, or um they never were able to do what they needed to do which was a, a, a corporate wide sustainable program or if they did have a sustainable program um and a large scale program something would happen and it would show that there was a huge flaw and that they they couldn't the plans were not really effective that they were you know like people call them uh you know door stops or whatever just these big binders that no one ever used and if you open them up they weren't very useful so I, I got to wondering why um, why these programs with these very intelligent, capable people were constantly being you know rebooted. And it started to occur to me that um, the secret was in engagement. So the people, the business we work with have to be engaged in the program. If they're not engaged, they're not gonna tell you they're not engaged, but you're, they're not going to do the work and they're not going to give you the answers that are truly effective. Um, so for example, if I were to go into say treasury and ask them questions about, you know, recovery and how they would do this and that other thing, they would answer me. They would, they would meet with me and they tell me yes, no, yes. But if they're fully engaged, what they would say is, uh, Scott, you're asking the wrong question. You should be asking this because mm. this is really what we do because I'm not a treasury expert. They are. And especially when you're talking about doing their job in an adverse situation like a recovery situation, I don't know their job well enough And every culture. Every company is different. So there's no way I can be an expert in every function in the company. So the business needs to be engaged. And, the, and so then I start thinking, how can I get the business engaged? And this whole idea of, um, you know, they need to own the risk. That's where that came from. They need to be mentored and trained and kept excited. And so all these things came out. And that's um, the, the kind of interesting part about it is that is half of So, like I said, the, the, the stick and the carrot, that usually makes a really good um, approach the carrot part you know at like at eBay we didn't really have much of a stick so I really had to start focusing on this carrot part this engagement how to get people involved and active and and so that um, became a huge you know for a few years I just focused on how to get engagement and how to measure that engagement because if you can't measure something for me it's just anecdotal it doesn't doesn't mean anything mm. you have to be able to measure it
0: yeah, so how do you approach engagement measurement? Is that based on, uh, you know, how quickly they finish a plan for you, or no. whether they attend all the meetings, or eh. you know, what does that look like?
1: Yeah, so how do you quantify the qualitative? That's what I want right. to talk on that. Um, engagement is a very qualitative thing. So, I first of all, I wrote down all the things that I felt like um, someone who is engaged what they're, what it would look like what they would do how they would do it i just made a list of all those things and then i put those things into um uh into kind of this requirements and at the end of it i made a certification so at ebay what we did is i made a, a fake certification based on the business, the resiliency department certifies that you are a certified business continuity manager. Basically,
0: was it like Baldwin Bucks or something well, like that, where you know, like there's no intrinsic value? It's just a something yeah. you've made up. I mean, like <laughs> that's interesting. Like, did you make a certificate too?
1: Well, yeah, we made a certificate. It costs about a hundred bucks to do this. You can go and get a stamp to do, you know, the little label. Right. I had the logo on there, and then I got on, you know, Amazon. You can get the the certificate stock paper. And now here's the cool part. Money is only worth what we all agree it's worth. You know, everything in life is kind of like consensual. You know, like we we all agree that this is worth that. So, yeah, you could say that these are Baldwin bucks. These are like, like useless <laughs> or worthless certificates, but the, it actually went over really well. And part of that was, and, and this went both directions, I would go to the highest executive I could get okay and i would get them to sign it so now i'm getting the executive engaged because you know what they might act like i'm putting them out but i know secretly they're kind of like hey this is kind of cool i'm signing you know um and they understand what we're doing i'm i'm presenting to them like every month i'm giving them like five or six certifications they need to sign look we got five or six more people certified uh, they are totally engaged now they know what i'm doing they know that they can see the um, progress i'm making and they're kind of invested now because their name is written on it so you want to get svp you know some kind of a c level person to sign it and then you give it to the business continuity manager i call him bcm at ebay which was again someone embedded within the function that probably didn't have any experience in resiliency before this and we trained him etc now you give them this frame certificate Um, signed by you know um, the CEO or the CFO or whoever it is it's really cool they really like it then I would send out an email to that person and his boss and the boss's boss and made a big a deal as I could about the certification and it was actually you know went over really well I remember um, the first time I went to um, Korea and uh, well not the first time but after this we started this program first I went to Korea and went to the, one of the offices. I looked around, and they had the you know open office plan, right? Just mm-hmm. all these like almost like lunch tables, and I looked around. And I saw, hey, there's my certificate. Someone had put it up. You know, I'd never met this person, but um, they were had it. You know, signed. They were excited about Prominently it. Prominently so, displayed. Yeah, huh? it was it was really cool. So that's
0: interesting. <laughs> so going back to the metrics aspect of mm-hmm. this and qualitative nature of engagement, mm-hmm. was it? Uh, you know, what was the metrics you
1: used in this, this area? Did, yes. Is
0: there a, enough something you reported?
1: or Yeah, so, um, again, if I had carte blanche to do a program anyway, if, you know, if if an executive said do it however you feel is right, first thing I would do is create a policy and have the board, the executive board, approve it so that it has some teeth. That's the first thing. And that policy would say that each area owns their own Resiliency risk and everybody says in resilience. Everyone says oh, yeah, the business owns a risk, but a lot of times they're just saying that but they the corporate group will continue to do all the work for the business. They'll do the BI. They'll do the interviews they will do the exercises, Everything will be done by the corporate group, even though they are, you know, saying that the business owns it. What I do is I really get the executives to buy in on the fact that the business really does on it. So if something goes down, that that executive is personally responsible for it. And so the first thing I do is I go to that executive and I t- give them the message and they usually turn red or have a little heart attack and start arguing with me why this is not right, et cetera. But then I say, but if you give me somebody, um, and I found it's about 7%, and if there's a lot of technology, it could be up to 10%. If you give me somebody to train, um, a business continuity manager, for example, and give let me use seven to ten percent of their time, I will guarantee that I will make that person a certify them, which signifies that they can do all your compliance and they could manage an incident for the first twenty four hours. That's my kind of agreement with them. And it ninety nine percent of the time, they are so happy to hear that they're off the hook, they give me somebody. And, but they usually mm-hmm. when I'm talking, I can see the light go off in their head. But typically, they know who they're going to – there's someone operationally minded because there's a lot of people out in the world that think like we do, that love this kind of stuff. So they give me somebody. And so what the goal is is to get somebody trained to the point that I don't need to spend January to December doing BIAs, BCPs, DRPs, validation exercises that they – can do it themselves and we can just assist as needed. So we do a crawl, walk, run methodology where, so some of the things that we measure are, can this person conduct a BIA on their own? Can this person build a plan on their own? Can they run a tabletop exercise validation exercise on their own? And then after that's all done, can they train someone else on all these things? Once they can do all that, then they they've mastered that aspect of it. We also have things, we usually do community of practice meetings um, and we ask each of the people, you know, um, to present, you know. And again, these are ways to see how engaged um, um, or or to, to kind of test our engagement. When I was a software developer and I had a stack of work to do, I would always do the work I enjoyed the most first. I would always find a reason why I couldn't get to the bottom of the pile. If I didn't want to do something, there was a lot of excuses. And no one could argue with me because, you know, it is what it is. It's the same with all business. If you give somebody work that they hate doing, they're going to find reasons why they can't do it. They're going to have barriers to engagement. So what we try to do is remove all the barriers to engagement, we become their best friend. We mentor them, we support them, we train them, we give them, you know, the certifications. We, we do a newsletter, newsletter every month, and highlight somebody. We go through a lot of work to try to engage with these people. And like I said, there's there's certain things like uh, how many community practice meetings do they attend? We also have a one-on-one once a month. How often are they um, attending those? Then we have tools typically that we train people on. So there's all these. Yeah small pieces that we are kind of seeing, have they mastered this? Have they done this or that? And at the end of the day, if somebody can train somebody else on the compliance aspects of resiliency, and if they're attending the meetings, if they're participating, there's a score we give them. And, you know, ultimately there is a a qualitative aspect to it. So we do have to decide, is this person, there's a feel to it as well. Are they ready to go? But basically, you know, we measure all these aspects, and once they meet a threshold, we certify them. And, that, and then I go back to the executive and say, look, here we go. You now have somebody. We've met our end of the bargain. You've given me somebody, and I'm giving you them back, and they they can run your internal program now.
0: So if you were uh, – it sounds like you had some help on this. Maybe, maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but it doesn't sound like you, from what I know about you, is that you had a huge staff devoted to this, so you had to really kind of – you know, grapple with some of the concepts. When you were starting out, was engagement the highest priority? Like if you started a new program today, would be would be engagement be the number one thing or would it be immediately getting the policy done or, you know, where would you start first to kind of craft the Scott Baldwin type of program?
1: Well everything I think engagement is the most the single most important thing. When I'm hiring someone, I don't look at how much experience necessarily they have. I look at how well they can communicate, how well they can engage me, or, you know, they in fact, I've hired people who had no experience in resiliency, um, and they turned out to be amazing, because I can teach you. And That's what we do. We teach our business partners how to do resiliency. So with that being said, I can teach anyone that's coming on my team how to do it. What I, you can't teach is someone who, um, you know, has that view on Working with other people, how to get people right. engaged, etc. So um, I don't remember that's what you. That's
0: awesome. You're, yeah. No, that's perfect. That's perfectly you know on point with what I'm I'm thinking too. I I see that there's a scale of engagement, um, and the more you take into account your brand value about you know what people perceive about your program, the higher you know acceptance and and participation. So I, I think you're spot on with that. Um, you know, and I was thinking about the uh, the, the topic of, of your certification program. It's very simple, but it's straightforward. It's to the point, right? And it gets people interested in this. You know, was there any tools or, or other resources you used beyond the engagement aspect to help you? Are you, are you a software fan or do mm-hmm. you, you tend to go with, uh, you know, more archaic Word and Excel files. <laughs> yeah. How did you approach the, the aspect or how did you teach that to the, your, your uh, BCM program?
1: Well, it, it, you know, it's like you're cutting down a tree and you got a handsaw or you got a chainsaw. What would you rather use? You know, having a chainsaw is not going to cut down the tree automatically. You still got to do the work, but it makes it a lot easier. So for, for technology, especially if you're dealing with a large company, um, it is... In fact, if it's if you're over ten thousand people, I would have a hard time understanding well, actually actually I take that back. We at Symantec we didn't have a tool. We were going to buy a tool before Broadcom bought us out. But um we use Excel the whole time. And it worked. It was painful. It was we spent a lot more time massaging the data and we couldn't pull data out that we like to do reporting on, like um dependency mapping and other things that a tool allows you to do. But I was just talking to a guy uh, the other day. He, he's not a resiliency person, but he wants to do re- he wants to introduce resiliency into his company. And so he asked me about tools. And his understanding was, if you buy a tool, you're done. That's it. You just <laughs> need to get a tool in place and you're done. And I asked him, I said, well, who's going to administer the tool? Who's going who's to pop? Who's going to, you know, and he did like, well, that's a, good, that's, that's a good question. I have no idea. Yeah. And I said, you can't just introduce a tool. How are people going to know what to even put in yeah, that? You
0: tool? wouldn't believe how many people like, you know, you know, I work at Virtual Corporation and we have a software tool, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, how many people just come straight without any clue as to a program and how it should run or how even what the expectations should be and they're just like, Give me how much it costs. Yeah. Well more than glad to help them, but at the end of the day we always or I always tend to tell them, Well what are you planning to do with it? You know? And and it it's great to have tools like this, but again, you can buy software and it'll sit on the shelf just like a plan would if you don't really have a good plan around how to use that. That's interesting. Um you know as as new people are coming into the industry now you know that may don't maybe don't have the experience of all the knowledge you've gained over these years and and, and know this stuff like what would you recommend to people who are just starting out on like how to approach their program model or approach their kind of self improvement what would you recommend to them
1: uh well it's interesting cuz cuz what we do is not rocket science it's pretty straightforward it's not complicated but on the other hand, it's not easy either. It's 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 simple, but it's hard. Um, there's I'm not really aware of a lot of resiliency centric um, books or anything like that that talk about anything but the. I mean, most of it's around tactical or operational aspects. This is how you do a BIA, et cetera, et cetera. Again, that you could master how to do a business continuity plan. Relatively quickly, mm-hmm. but how do you get? See so, again about engagement. You will not know. I mean, people won't tell you they're not engaged, typically, especially in a professional setting. You will see signs of disengagement, but you you won't. They won't say, "I'm disengaged," right? So you have to learn what are the. How do you get people engaged? How do you know if people are engaged? Um, you know, one of the things that I always look for. And this, I know this isn't answering your question, but I love it when I get critiques from my business partners when they tell me, mm. you should be doing this or suggestions on how to improve the program because most of the time, if people are not engaged, they won't think again about it. They're not going to spend the time to tell you how to do things better. That's a sign of engagement if they're telling you um, yeah, how, how to, how to the... improve. Right, 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 right. So right. that's great. But back to your question, um, I would say... These are almost like soft skills and i guess um joining groups local resiliency or business continuity or you know like acp or in the bay area we have burma um and just talking to professionals and these are the kinds of things that that you know tips and tricks right um yeah how to get people to do things and how to get them involved etc um but you know what to be honest I'm sure there are stuff out there. I, I'm not aware of yeah. that aspect. How how you would do that?
0: Right. So it's uh maybe not a well known fact, but you're an you're an active participant in ACP and in in uh, Burma and, and things like that. So, you know, you you got the unique perspective of experience, but then also you've participated at the uh, kind of the industry level. So in your perspective, you know. How are we doing as an industry? Is there any areas that you feel like, you know, as a whole, I think we need to improve here? Is it...
1: Yeah, I I, I have a very strong opinion on that, and it's just an opinion. It's just my opinion. I know there's people out there have different opinions, but if you look at all our traditional tools right now, the BIA, the BCP, the Disaster Recovery Plan, the Validation Actuals, everything we have right now regardless of what we say, everything that we have is centered around recovery. The BIA brings us recovery time objectives, recovery planning, recovery exercises. Everything we have is around recovery. Now in the Bay Area and the Silicon Valley, and I'm sure pretty much everywhere else, no one cares about recovery anymore. They don't want to be in a situation where they need to have recovery. so when I talk to executives, they'll often say something to the effect of, if we need to recover, then it's too late. I'm out of a job already. You know, Basically, I don't wanna hear about recovery because that is, we can't let that happen. We can't let disruption happen. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the industry has to move away from recovery, but with this caveat, I always like liken, um, and we did a, a cursed seminar, a webinar recently.
0: (laughs) We did a backup plan for that one.
1: (laughs) Right. Um, But the point I was going to make, or I don't know if I was able to make it, but I liken resiliency to healthcare and you have, you know, healthcare, the point of healthcare is not um, to pick people off of the street, you know, necessarily it's to have optimal health and to have people enjoy their life and, you know, do what they want to do. And, you know, However, that doesn't mean you can ignore the ambulance. The ambulance has to be part of your health healthcare program, but your focus has to be on optimization of health. So in resiliency, I think the future of resiliency is similar. We need to have this recovery, response, and recovery capability, but nobody wants to hear about I mean that has to be almost like in our back pocket. What we need to advertise to executives and to companies is that we're here to enable high availability to um, avoid impacts, to optimize processes. And this is all done at the other end of the spectrum, at the risk area. So we need new tools. We need a new set of tools that no longer focus on recovery, but focus on risk. And they need to be resiliency-centric tools because we are a very specific type of function. We're not like risk. Um, We're not like emergency response we have aspects of both on either end but i think we need to kind of retool our tool set so to speak and and come up with these um these availability and impact avoidance and impact absorption tools
0: excellent so just basically change the whole industry turn it upside down
1: well no i don't i think i think we have an awesome (laughs) um base i think what the what, you know, our predecessors have done for the past 30 years or 40 years or however long it's been with, with business continuity and disaster recovery is awesome. They've perfected a lot of these tools. The problem is we just need to build on top of that. I think about from about 10 years ago, I started noticing a kind of divergence between – it, it was strange. It was like people stopped – I mean, they wouldn't say it – well, sometimes they would, but mostly it was in their eyes. They're like, okay, I – I don't really buy into what you're doing, but okay, you got to do it. And I finally, I think, recognize that to be, again, we need people that can keep us up and running, not people that can recover. You know, recovery mm. became less and less of a value add, I, I think. think. You know, I don't know that if that makes sense, but that's the way I see it. That's where I think we're going.
0: Yeah, a lot of stuff you say doesn't really make sense. I'm <laughs> glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you for joining me today because this has been really interesting. I'm really glad you are able to explain the uh, certification process and the idea of engagement because that is a very strong part of any preparedness program, um, and, and I think you've gotten a lot of success with that. So thanks, Scott. I appreciate you joining me today.
1: Thanks, Shane. It was great.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on the Failover Plan podcast. I'm going to do my best to continue to get people on the show that have a unique perspective on business continuity through both their successes and failures. So make sure you continue to stay tuned. To subscribe, make sure you visit our website, failoverpodcast.com, or find us on iTunes and other podcast sites. Thanks again for listening. And remember, why learn how to do something on your own when there's got to be someone else who may have already learned this the hard way? We'll yeah.